Big Talk. Plan B. Feelings and emotions. Do we want to transmit them via Facebook, Rebecca Davis? I don't think we do, John. But that is what Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg says is the future. This week he was doing a question and answer session on his own Facebook page. And one person asked him, what does the future of Facebook look like? And he said that one day we'll be able to send emotional experiences to each other, which he called the ultimate communication technology. He said... Quote, you'll just be able to think of something and your friends will immediately be able to experience it too, if you'd like. Unquote. Now, One I, day I believe we'll be able to send full, rich thoughts to each other directly. That's correct. I don't often have full, rich thoughts, it must be said. <laughs> I, I think this throws up a number of troubling questions. And the, 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 the central one for me is, will we have some form of mental signal jammers? Because how will you be able to ensure that your full emotional experiences are getting through to the right people would it be an eye contact thing i mean it clearly wouldn't be because that would negate the whole point of telepathy um how 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 exactly is this going to work will it be some sort of brain chip i mean he just sounds so sure about it i want to know if facebook's working on this in the, in the side is this some secret technology we don't know about john <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of secret technologies we don't know about them. That's why they're secret. Can you can you think of anything worse though than than having people be able to send you emotional experiences without you knowing what they are in advance? There you are having a perfectly good day, and someone can just send you their emotions. I mean, that is imagine if people were receiving my emotions, <laughs> the entire world would become gloomy I and mean, despondent. I sort of do get it because this is essentially what Facebook does to you anyway on a daily basis. It forces you to interact with other people's humanity in the most confronting way. All their stupid emotions are plastered all over those pages. But at least there's one or two steps of remove there, John. I can't think of anything worse than this dystopian nightmare we're going to set foot in. Although, intriguingly, Mr. Zuckerberg then deleted that comment from the question and answer session, perhaps because, you know, he let the cat out of the bag <laughs> too soon, John. Yes, yes. So, I'm away from home and I know that my daughter is incredibly positive when I'm with my daughter and I'm feeling down as surprise, surprise, I sometimes am. Mm. She has an extraordinary ability to cheer me up. So if I were in Johannesburg, oh, God forbid, or <laughs> on assignment in Kazakhstan, I wouldn't mind being able to contact Emma and say, my darling sent me some positive thoughts. But it would something that would have to be agreed in That's advance. Right. It would have to be mutually consensual. Uh, that's what, there has to be some kind of blocking blocking technique. Um, Dear M, please send me some positive emotions. Or, Dad, do you mind if I send you some frustrating, frustrated emotions? It's got to be that sort and who, of thing. I mean, who would consent to the latter as a form of catharsis for the other person? You'd have to be so Love saintly. means accepting their <laughs> Facebook emotions. <laughs> is that what it is? I've been getting it wrong all the time. Yes. Uh, David? In Milderton, Rebecca, you... Hi, yeah. John. I think it would be wonderful if we could uh, use mental telepathy to talk to each other. We could have mental firewalls so that I don't want to be interrupted. <laughs> the, your message can be queued in the ether. In, in that case, we don't even need Facebook. We don't need computers. We just talk to each other. You know, we can leave messages for each other. We can tap into them when we want. 
everything is just mental. There's no reason why we can't do it. We don't. We use hardly any of our brain in any case. We just have to work out how to use the rest. Well, QI says that that notion we use only 7% of our brain is a myth. So QI says that we actually use close to 98% of our brain. It's one okay. of, yeah, and the QI But there's still, but there's, still lots of, uh, there's still lots and lots and lots of capability there. Yeah. The, the world is mental, David, let's face it. But I, I'm a little worried about <laughs> what your theory would do for talk radio. Would I have a job? Or imagine how mm. exhausted I would get mentally communicating with hundreds of thousands of people for three hours every afternoon. I'd well, imagine be, you, could, you could do it from home. <laughs> <laughs> my office has a better view than my home so oh dear i hope he um, deleted that comment because he realized how ridiculous it is do you know what i like most about david's con- contribution he just made to this conversation was when he said there's no reason why we can't do it i mean i'm I- I'm no expert, John. I'm not a scientist, but I think there are a few reasons why we can't do it just yet. But it, clearly, Mister Zuckerberg thinks otherwise. Mm. So, I mean, rather more seriously, you have come from a colloquium around uh, President Bashir and his exit from the country and the International Criminal Court. Did you learn anything new? It was it was a, a panel discussion held by the Institute for Justice and Recon- Reconciliation on the topic. The rule of law after Bashir, because, you know, there's a lot of alarmist talk. Is there a rule of law in this country anymore? If the government doesn't have to obey court orders, do any of us? Is it just going to collapse into sheer anarchy? And the answer, I think, is no. But um, there were some interesting perspectives, perhaps particularly from Professor Dira Tladi, who is a professor of international law at the University of Pretoria, but also happens to be the Department of International Relations Special Advisor and has worked extensively with the International Criminal Court. So he had some pretty interesting insights. I mean, he was taking a, a heavily government defensive stance, but he was extremely critical of the North Khateng High Court ruling um, ordering that Bashir should be arrested in the first place. He said it was his opinion that it was a decision made in haste, that counsel for both sides probably hadn't had the necessary time to prepare, and that the court got it wrong, that they misinterpreted both the Rome Statute, the UN Security Council Resolution on Immunity, and South Africa's own domestic laws about uh, diplomatic immunity, powers and privileges. That's what the appeal process is for. That's right. And I must say he did not speak to the question of what it means even if in his, v- his view, it is a bad decision. And look, the one thing he was saying is that, you know, it's easy for us non-lawyers to sit there and go, well, this is simple, you know, we should have arrested them. I mean, it's not simple. It's clearly not a simple matter in international law. There's a lot of murkiness about it. And perhaps, you know, this is one of the, the appealing aspects that will come out of it is some clarity on that matter. But um, he didn't speak to the question of whether if, you, if the government dislikes a ruling, they should still be, still be allowed to ignore it. But there was another interesting thing, well, it was, it's fairly, fairly evident, I suppose, which is that another good thing that's come out of this is that it has forced a degree of transparency about South Africa's foreign policy, which in the past we haven't been privy to, you know. This has just laid it out on the table. This is how we feel about the ICC. This is how we feel about potentially other in- international instruments of law, the UN even as well, you know. We tend to play this kind of quiet game diplomatically. Um, and a lot goes down at, at the UN in terms of South Africa's voting, Jonathan, that I think a lot of us are unaware of in terms of how we vote. I didn't know, for instance, that earlier this year we voted with China in on a resolution that would allow states to ban NGOs from attending N- UN forums if the state didn't like the NGO. I mean, that to me, it does not speak volumes about our commitment to international human rights. But I think that stuff is often underscrutinized. Uh, Nicole Fritz, who set up the South African Litigation Centre, which is in the spotlight on this one, has an article in Business Day today. And 
again, what's become clear is how much work was done ahead of mm. the AU summit. Uh, the SALC sent government a legal opinion saying that they were going to approach the courts and their legal opinion was that the South African government would be required by international law to arrest. But there, uh, other things, for example, um, there was a Sri Lankan general suspected of crimes against humanity was due to be posted to South Africa as a diplomat. So the SALC then approached the government and said, are you aware that this man is being investigated for international crimes? And the South African government acted on that and quietly said to the Sri Lankans, don't think about sending him here. So there's there's a lot right. been going on behind the scenes. And, you know, I think we also haven't discussed that the threat of an arrest to the Egyptian president made by a Muslim legal society in South Africa prevented the Egyptian president from coming to the AU. They were successful in their advocacy ahead of term, so successful that he did not dare to set foot here. But, I mean, I think that exact point, that, that there's been time, is very important and it was one that was... Um, made today by another law professor from uh, UNISA, whose name is, I'm sorry, I'm just checking, Professor Jeremy Sarkin, who pointed out that, you know, we faced these issues in 2009 when Bashir was going to come to South Africa. If in the, I mean, th th that is six years ago. Why, why in that time haven't we, A, left the Rome Statute, B, you know, at least made some kind of public declarations about where we stand on it, or C, rewrite our laws about diplomatic immunity in order to ensure that the situation that we're just not faced with it. It just speaks to, you know, if nothing else, an astonishing lack of foresight and, yeah, planning on the, on the government side, I'd say. Uh, a tweet about the notion of sending um, emotions via, uh, via mental telepathy, um, well, not by mental telepathy, via Facebook. Sorry, I just can't find my Twitter screen. It's gone. From Devon, who says, can you imagine the spam? No, thanks. <laughs> so do you have thoughts and feelings about the events in Greece? Is it something that you're following very, very closely and with huge interest? I am actually, John, although I know almost nothing about economics, although I'm learning by the day. Now I'm an expert, just as I am in international <laughs> law. Um, but what I've been interested in, John, is the attitude of people towards the Greek crisis, which I see daily, which is one almost of amusement. There's kind of this, I mean, I hear jokes all the time about, you know, the capital of Greece is a few euros and, and this stuff. I don't know whether it's because we in Africa think that European poverty can't ever really be real compared to African poverty or what it is, but there's this, this sense of the, the lack of compassion with which Greece is being treated, and this also extends to their creditors, I think is really distressing actually and very alarming. Perhaps what's behind it is the sense that, well, if you bring something on yourself, how can you expect sympathy for the plight that you find yourself in? And it's not just that the government was corrupt. Part of the government's corruption was keeping themselves in power so that they could continue to be corrupt by unsustainably providing comforts to Greek citizens, Greek voters. That's right. But it's, it's still this uncomfortable notion of collective punishment for an entire citizenry. You know, it irks me, John, and, and I think it's it's distressing. You know, in 2012, Christine Lagarde, who's the head of the International Monetary Fund, obviously had, had an interview with the, the Guardian in which she said, you know, I think all these people are trying to escape tax all the time. All these people in Greece are trying to escape tax. I think they should help themselves collectively by all paying their tax. I mean, sure, it's a fair comment, but it's this collective notion of the Greeks must be punished that, that I don't like at the moment. And, you know, the, uh, several prominent economists, Paul Krugman and um, Joseph Stiglitz, have said that, 
you know, the, the, this notion of Greek irresponsibility, even in government, has been overstated to some degree. And that, yes, the, the Greek government was inflating spending. I mean, obviously, some of their, their measures were absolutely indefensible. The fact that public sector wages were, in some cases, three times higher than the private sector, obviously unsustainable. But, you know, they have slashed spending. They've cut jobs by 25%. And the point is, we're sitting here with a country, you know, where youth unemployment is at 60%. That's higher than South Africa by some measures. Where 40% of children are living below the, the poverty line. The suicide rate is spiraling. Homelessness is rife, particularly in cities like Athens. I just don't find much to, to joke about or, or much to, to not find the, you know, the empathy in that. It's a terrible so, situation. Yeah, I mean, Prime Minister Tsipras is correct, I think, in that too much austerity prevents the opportunity of Greece growing out of its economic problems to some extent. But at the same time, from the European Union, the ECB point of view, they simply don't trust Tsipras and they don't trust his government. They, as soon as we turn the taps back on, the promises of some austerity will be forgotten and we'll move from some moderate austerity to hardly any austerity at all. And then six months down the line, we're being asked to bail things out once more. I do think there is a, an EU-wide discomfort with Cyprus's left-leaning government as well, and I don't think we should discount the fact that there are, you know, those political factors as well. But also the fact that um, the bailout money that's going to Greece credit currently, almost none of it is actually going to Greece. It's going to, to, to banks in Germany and France, you know. So this notion that they're getting all this money and squandering it is also not true. They're just servicing their existing debt loans, which they shouldn't have been given in the first place. And it reminds me of, you know, these unscrupulous moneylenders in Marikana or whatever with their garnishy orders for people who clearly cannot afford to pay them back, yet giving them more and more money. I mean, it, it, it's, a bad, it's a bad situation, John, obviously. Yeah, I've just been forwarded a tweet from Bazima Shilowa, which speaks to what what you were saying there. Greek bailouts rescued European bankers, not the people. Greece has received 240 billion euros in bailout funds since 2010. 92% of that went to European banks and financial institutions. Only 8% of the remaining funds actually went to the Greek government. That's right. And have you seen, John, I'm sure you have seen this crowd this crowdfund campaign to bail Greece out. Yes, it, w- it had reached <laughs> yesterday. We got a $800,000. It had reached yesterday when we got a report back. It's on 1.3 million euros at the moment. Euros, not dollars, yeah. At 1.3. I think, in five so, days. Which isn't bad, although, of course, these are people contributing in the knowledge that they'll never have to actually walk out. But I must say, John, there's something about that campaign that also gives me a bit of a funny feeling because it's sort of a bit play-play, but imagine if you just could raise 1.3 million euro and give it to, you know, the homeless in Athens or, or whatever. There's something, something there I don't love as well. And then you feel that this is, we've reached a point in the history of our species that needs to be remarked, needs to be commented on, needs to be observed and dealt with. That's right. What, what is the date, John, just so we have it on record? The date is the 2nd of July. 2nd of July, year of our Lord, 2015, John. This is the tipping point for our species. As many of your listeners will by now know, the first murder of a human by a robot has occurred at a VW production plant in Frankfurt. Where, a murder or an accident? Where, <laughs> where a 22-year-old worker was grabbed by a robot and crushed against a metal plate. Now, John, I know you're going to be all deflating about this and be like, oh, it was just an industrial accident. It could have how, how, does, how does she know I'm going to be all <laughs> deflating about this? On what basis do you make that? Telepathy, John. <laughs> <laughs> that I wondered what that stabbing pain was. <laughs> um, but the point is, 
this could be the beginning of what the geeks call the singularity, John. The moments at which machines become sentient and then they crush us all. And, you know, I was reading about this today. And the point is that people who know a lot more than you and I about robots and artificial intelligence are actually quite scared about this this state of affairs. So Elon Musk, for instance, the South African-born space entrepreneur and um, tech innovator, has been funding uh, an institute which looks into the negative implications of artificial intelligence, which Musk has compared to, quote, summoning the devil. Um, Bill Gates has also said he doesn't understand why people aren't more concerned about the, the p- potentials. And hold on, John, not quite, not quite done. In November 2014, <laughs> no less a scientific authority than Stephen Hawking told the BBC, I think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race because the point he makes, which seems entirely sensible, is that they can redesign themselves at a rate that we can never keep up with because there were technically still evolving. I mean, into what? It's nothing very impressive. Yeah, a couple of Fridays ago, I was listening to Chris Smith, a naked scientist with Reedy, and he was talking about some work which had been done in California or Japan or somewhere, doesn't matter, where um, robots were able to do something, fully built, they were able to do something, and then they had a leg removed, and they adapted to being able Mm. to do the same thing and they just changed their, their mode of moving forward and so on. And basically, it was a bit like the, mm. that scene in Monty mm. Python's Holy Grail. Come back there and I'll bite your bloody head off. <laughs> That's the right arm, then the left arm, then the left <laughs> leg, and then the right leg were sorted off. And he continued to fight. That's what these robots, they, they corrected, they learned, they adapted it's terrifying, John. What is not terrifying about that? We should all off ourselves immediately. And what I didn't like about the reports about this accident in the VW factory was um, that a VW spokesman said this was not a robot intended to work side by side with humans. It was meant to live in a safety cage. I mean, everything about that, again, is absolutely chilling. I don't think I can continue. <laughs> I think I have to follow Rebecca to an earthquake shelter. We should still have some sardines and water left over from 1995. (laughs) Thank you very much. There'll be another Plan B next week. Thanks, John.